Hey guys, it's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the blog site, YouTube channel, SoundCloud, and iTunes podcast, where I talk about buying, selling, managing, and financing small and medium-sized businesses. This um, weekend, I am at the Paper Source Note Convention in Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, I had to get up early in the morning, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to get a reasonable flight out of my hometown, so I actually left Wednesday night, drove down to Halifax, spent a night in a hotel, had to get up early, spent you know, the better part of a day traveling to Las Vegas and crossed four time zones. So by the time I got to Las Vegas, it was lunchtime. And of course, uh, my body was telling me that it was supper time because, because, you know, the the Maritimes were four hours later, but I managed to arrive partway through the very first of the afternoon sessions. and, And there was a fellow talking about, about marketing in his note business. And, and for those of you that are not familiar um, just like we have vendor financing notes a lot of the time when businesses are bought and sold, um, particularly in certain U.S. states, there are a lot of homes that end up getting sold, uh, usually country homes, smaller homes, homes to buyers who don't have such great credit, and the, the seller ends up financing the home purchase by carrying a mortgage back. And because you have these individuals out there holding these these debt instruments, these promissory notes, uh, there is a market of people who go out looking for them and buy them um, in order to invest money and, and try to get a higher rate of return. So this convention is all, it, it's filled with people who are trying to buy notes as an investment and people who broker notes. So they know who want to buy them and they go looking for them and they hope to make a spread off the buy and sell price. And uh, there are all kinds of, of suppliers here, uh, from attorneys to note servicing companies, you know, who do the back office functions for these investors, collecting the payments and doing all the tax paperwork, you know, to, to create an easily, you know, to follow um, report for tax time and that kind of thing. And I was invited to come here because on Saturday I'm going to be doing a talk about um, vendor financed business notes and because you know there's a there's an interest here in all kinds of notes and and they wanted someone to come and talk about business notes so one of the interesting things though about uh, the Thursday afternoon seminars is there was a fellow by the name of Michael Taylor and he did a presentation about his nightmares in cash flow investing and he talked about um, how he had almost been stung in a fraud uh, that someone had tried to perpetrate on him he had managed a, a private um, equity fund that was going out and buying notes, and he had also worked for one of the big uh, Wall Street firms back in the days of the mortgage-backed security craziness, you know, that led to the 2008 financial crisis. And and I caught up with him afterwards. He lives in Texas now, and he's got a book that he just released. Um, you know, the new financial rules for students. I forget the exact title, but uh, Michael Taylor is his name. And it was a really interesting uh, talk because one of the things that, uh, that, of course, he was saying is that at the institutional level, there's money to be invested in cash flows to try to get a greater rate of return. But these things are hard to find. And, um, you know, later on in the afternoon, there was a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Tom uh, Henderson who is one of the grandfather-type figures in this industry because he wrote a, a really famous book that I read about 12 years ago called The Note Professor Notebook. I actually I credit that book fully 
with me learning some of the tips, tricks, and ways to make business deals happen as when I was a business broker and today when I advise people because I understand the ins and outs and flexibility that you can have when you start to know how you can set up these notes and the different things that, that the owner of the note may ultimately want to do with it. Um, but the, so what, so what uh, Michael was saying is that there's huge amounts of money on Wall Street that go chasing after yield, but because the market for these nodes is so tiny and fragmented, like you've, you know, you've got people who are selling homes worth $100,000 and they're carrying an $80,000 note, it's very difficult for the big institutional people to, to chase after these smaller deals. So it really is kind of a niche industry. Um, and the people who are interested in it and the people who are in it you know, congregate once a year here in Las Vegas. And so um, I'm going to record a couple of these little things and put them all together and give you guys a report as to how the, how the whole weekend goes. And I'm going to drop any juicy tidbits of things that I learn. And what um, I'm going to record my Saturday presentation and uh, I'll, uh, I'll figure out afterwards how I'm going to let that be available to you guys. So uh, this is my report after the Thursday afternoon sessions. And uh, of course, there's an open bar cocktail networking event. And uh, I'm going to go see if I can't grab myself a beer. So I'll, I'll be right back. Talk to you soon. Oh, hey guys, it's uh, David again, and uh, I wanted to talk to you about what happened on Friday. Um, <clears throat> you know, it started off with a continental breakfast in the morning, and I was talking with a couple of people, including a father and son, who, who have come all the way from Singapore to, to attend the conference. It, it's interesting because I'm meeting people who have been in this industry for 40 years, buying and selling notes. I'm meeting people who... Uh, have done nothing and they've come to the convention to learn more because they're thinking about buying one or two uh, home finance notes to put into their retirement account. Uh, I'm learning, you know, that there are people here who have just started in, uh, in the note brokering business and they're trying to learn how to do better. They're trying to make contacts, find investors, find, uh, there are a couple of banks that are here, small regional American banks that buy some of these notes. And they're trying to make contacts in the industry so that they have more people that they can sell the notes that they find to. And it, it, it really is quite interesting because I, I've never, you know, gone this deep or been to any kind of event like this for this particular industry. But it's almost like everyone here is, uh, is, is kind of a finance person. They all know their time value of money and, and they all know how to, you know, calculate present value and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's interesting because in a way I, I, you know, have a lot to talk about with some of these people. When, when the sessions got started this morning, uh, the very first one was done by a guy named uh, John Schwab, who is at johnschwab.com, John, J-O-H-N-S-C-H-A-U-B.com. And like me, he got started in real estate investing with uh, apartments. And at one point, I owned two triplexes and a fourplex, which uh, I got out of, you know, when the interest rates fell and property values were going up, it, I found it was a time for me to get out of that industry. And what John was talking about in his presentation is how he balances rental homes with notes in his own personal 
you know, wealth portfolio and how each does a different thing. But what was key to me is how he was talking about real estate as a passive investment. And there are a lot of people out there who teach, you know, owning rental properties as a passive investment. And what John was talking about is how if somebody moves into an apartment, they almost always have a plan to leave. Um, you know, they're, they're transient. They're maybe, you know, going to move to a different home next year, or maybe they're waiting to buy a house, or maybe they're waiting in, in case they have to move for a job. So when you have an apartment house uh, or apartment building, you have a constant turnover of tenants. And the people who live there are very aware that it's not their property and not their home. When things break, they call you. So, you know, one of the common things that people often say about rental properties is that you have to deal with tenants and toilets, right? You know, broken toilets, plumbing problems, all that kind of thing. And what John does is something very different. He invests in single family homes that are in nicer neighborhoods. So he buys houses that are $250,000 to $300,000 and he rents them out. And the type of people who are buying or are renting these homes from him tend to be families with, um, you know, adults in the family who are professional people so they can afford to pay a higher level of rent. And what they're buying is that they want to raise their kids in a nicer neighborhood with access to nicer schools. And they probably come from having been homeowners before, but for some reason, they're not able to be a homeowner. So they either ran into business problems, financial problems, what have you, and they need to rent. And, and what, what he found over the course of the last 20 years of doing this strategy is that it truly becomes a more passive type of income because the people intend to be there for years and they treat the property as though it was their own house and they treat it with a lot more respect. And what he does is he's actually got a list of service providers. So if their air conditioning unit breaks, they call the technician directly and the technician already knows that it's one of John's houses and, and the technician sends the bill to John. And so he doesn't even have to manage you know, the day-to-day -day management of these properties because of the types of people that want to rent them. And so I, I just found it was very interesting. I once had a house of my own and uh, when I got married, we, we bought a new house, but I sold the old house on a lease to own deal where the people were renting from me and they paid me a little bit extra and they had an option to buy the house at a fixed price within three years. And at that time I would refund that little bit of extra that they were giving me every month. So they were building up a down payment as they rented from me. And those were the greatest tenants I ever had because from the moment they moved into that house, they started treating it like it was their own because it was always their intention to exercise the option and buy the house. And so it was, it was a really interesting presentation. Um, we then got into some roundtables, and there was a roundtable session done by Tom Henderson, the guy who I'd mentioned had done the two-hour session on Thursday afternoon. And he did a roundtable discussion where we went, and this is the one I attended, we, we sat down, we went through clause by clause, a contract for the purchase of a partial note. So let's say you have a note and uh, it goes for 10 years. So it's 120 payments are gonna be in this note. And if a note owner, uh, they only need 10 or 20 grand, they might not wanna sell the entire note because once you discount the future cash flows, you know the, the, the present value price of that note is gonna be lower maybe than what they want to sell it for. But you could say, 
well, if you only need a certain amount of money, here's what I'll do. I'll buy the next 25 payments from you. And then after I've collected the 25 payments, the note will go back to you, which, which is really interesting because we're talking about buying an asset and in the agreement, we're already agreeing that we're going to turn the asset back over to someone else after certain conditions have been met. And so <clears throat> we had an actual contract that we went through clause by clause and we discussed some of the different uh, aspects of, uh, of each clause and, and I found it was very interesting, although I know that I'm in a very special audience. Um, <laughs> after that, there was a, another guy, Gordon Moss, and uh, his website is realestateandnoteinvesting.com. And <clears throat> it was really interesting because what he does is he buys non-performing notes, in particular non-performing second mortgages, and he looks for opportunities to use those notes to acquire properties and oftentimes will acquire them while leaving the first mortgage in place and he will turn them into rental properties, for example. Or, and, and what's interesting is that here in the US, because of the financial crisis that happened back in 08, 09, there are a lot of these notes that, that when they were, shortly after they were written, the house values fell. So the homeowner stopped paying them because the debt was more than the house. But now that the housing market has recovered, a lot of these second position mortgages are back in the money. And so this guy has a strategy where he goes and he buys these second position non-performing notes. And then he goes to the homeowner and he says, look, I've got this lien on your property. We can redo the loan in such a way that you can start making payments again. It becomes a performing note so he can start getting a cash flow from it. Or, you know, I can foreclose on you, right? Uh, or you can sell the house and pay me what's owed on here. And it was very interesting to, to, to hear from them. And then there was a guy, Simon White, uh, localblitzmarketing.com, who talked about how Google is using machine learning technology, the artificial intelligence, to better manage um, uh, Google AdWord accounts. So they were talking about how some of these people in their businesses will use Google AdWords as a form of advertising and how these new systems are becoming more and more effective and better at being able to find the right kind of customers to show the ads to um, so, that, so that people are able to expose their businesses correctly. Um, lunch was awesome. I met a, a bunch of different people from the Northeast, from Connecticut and New Jersey, and um, it, talked with them about their experience and some of the deals that they had done. When we got back after lunch, the very first session was about changes to American bankruptcy rules as it, as it comes to secured loans. So uh, it was a little bit dry, but you know the people who were there were very interested because if they hold a mortgage and, and somebody goes into bankruptcy, there's some very specific rules about what information you send that person. And once they've filed bankruptcy, you then can't um, you know, harass the person. But the person still has a right to know, you know what their loan balance is and there's certain rules about how you present that information to them and when you're supposed to send it and when you're not. So, so that was interesting. The, um, in the afternoon, we had uh, um, a panel discussion and there were six different bankers uh, who, or, or hedge fund managers who run these funds that buy notes from brokers. And so there were many people here at the conference who are in the brokerage business where they try to find people who have notes. They then try to sell those notes to these bankers. 
And so it was like a Q&A. So the brokers could ask different questions like, what are your criteria with respect to seasoning? Seasoning means how many payments have been made on this note before they will consider buying it, for example. And then each banker would answer the question as to what their institution's policies were. And they would talk about maybe different rules that they have for different states and stuff like that. Um, and it was interesting to get a little bit of insight into how some of these institutional guys view different sorts of things as being risky uh, or being not. Um, in, um, in the late afternoon, though, okay, we had this guy, uh, Joe Dickerson and Carl Epps. And this gentleman is an older gentleman, and uh, Joe Dick Dickerson. And wow, I was totally amazed by this presentation. This guy has a background in financial forensics and had worked for at one time for the Texas Rangers. And what their business does is they go after assets. Uh, so if, if you have a claim against somebody and you obtain a judgment in court, saying perhaps someone owes you $100,000, but then that person says they can't pay because they have no assets. So that, you know, oh, I don't own the house. The house belongs to the family trust, and, and I don't have anything of this, I don't have any of that, and there's no money in the bank. What these guys do is they go after assets that people are trying to hide. And so they start with a subpoena process, and, and I just thought this was so crazy. They, they'll subpoena bank records, and they'll go through every credit and debit and they'll start following where money comes from and goes to for these different people and in one amazing case uh, they found a, a check to a power company in a southern state I think it was Missouri for $13.50 and the question was well why on earth would he have to send $13.50 to this power company so then they subpoenaed the power company records and found that the bill was going to a, an a rural address post office box and then they contacted the post office and they found out which carrier handled the mail in that rural route and they found out where exactly the property was and then they found out that the property was owned by the guy's father who had willed it to him and so he was basically trying to hide a farm in another state and he never wrote down anywhere that he owned this farm on any net worth statement or anything like this. But the reason they discovered the asset was because of this power, power bill payment. And, <clears throat> you know, my initial reaction was, well, why can't you just search on the Internet and find out, you know, what property somebody owns? And <clears throat> because land ownership is done by county, you would have to search 3,000 counties in the United States and then have to sort out, you know, all the people maybe who have the same name, who are not the same person, right? And so it would be a tremendous amount of work just to try to search someone's name to find out if they own a property. But these guys have this methodical system of going through and finding different assets. And then he said, for example, they will um, they'll subpoena from the home insurance company or the house insurance company a copy of the insurance application because oftentimes when we buy home insurance, we'll get additional riders for things like watches, jewelry, pieces of art. So that's where they'll get a list of things like Rolex watches and fur coats and you know pieces of artwork and stuff. And then they'll go to the judge and ask for permission to go and seize that stuff. And then they'll go into the home and they'll be like, where's the Rolex watch that you own? And so um, <laughs> I just thought it was amazing. Um, the 
They, they're able to um, look for um, signs of fraud and, and figure out where assets have moved. They, they, they told me another story uh, in the presentation about how they, these people who were being chased after by a debt collector, they, they spent $450,000 just before the judgment was issued to buy an annuity from an insurance company for their daughter. And then the daughter cashed in the annuity almost immediately to get a refund of the money back. And then she wired this money to a bank account in Greece. And they knew that they had always suspected that there was a bank account in Greece. But because the transaction happened just before the judgment was issued, they were able to say that it was a fraudulent transaction, that they only had done it to get assets out of their bank account into somebody else's name. And so then a judge agreed with them. And then they were able to expand the judgment to include the daughter. And once they had done that, they were able to subpoena uh, the banking records. And then they were able to find the transit number of the bank account in Greece. And then they were able to use the, the legal measures that are available to them to then go and pursue the assets in Greece using a Greek attorney. So um, it really blew my mind you know, what these guys uh, do and how they're able to recover these judgments um, from people who have you know, played a shell game and trying to hide all their different assets. Uh, and then after that, we had another networking uh, you know, evening cocktail hour. And um, I met a guy from Minnesota. And I actually met a guy from San Francisco whose family owns land on Cape Breton Island. And he was telling me that he wants to grow his note business because he wants to retire in Cape Breton. And uh, being that I took my kids there on vacation last summer, we talked a little bit about Cape Breton. It was very interesting. And um, yeah, so I'm having a great time and getting prepared and doing a lot of review for my presentation, which is happening uh, tomorrow afternoon at three. And uh, a lot of the people that I've talked to are going to, you know, are going to be there, and they said they're very interested. And of course, I'm going to record it, and uh, I'll let you guys know how you can hear it um, once I get back uh, home. And uh, I'll talk to you in a, in a bit about what happened on Saturday. Hey guys, it's uh, it's David. I'm back again, and uh, I'm actually I'm back home. Um, got up Saturday morning and went to the Paper Source Convention, and the day was uh, was pretty much a whirlwind. Um, and uh, I, I'll, I'll go through what happened during the day, and then a little bit about about my journey back back home. But I got in uh, Saturday morning early. I went to the Continental Breakfast, started talking with some of the people that you know I had met there, and. It was interesting because throughout the three days of the uh, conference, I was always sitting down and trying to sit down with new and different people just so that I could ask them questions. I wanted to know where they were from, what their their goals were, what kind of business they were trying to create, or if they were just going to be investors in some of these note assets that uh, are discussed at this conference. And it's really interesting because I met people from all over. I met another Canadian, a fellow from, uh, from Montreal, um, who invests in notes in the United States too. The, the morning started off with um, uh, Shandor Lau, um, who's a gentleman from the west coast of the U.S., from one of the western states, Oregon, I think. And uh, his website is notedfinancial.com. And he explained his journey through the path of initially real estate investing, buying buildings with apartments, uh, you know, and he talked about one of his um, you know, sort of faulty towers <clears throat> type buildings where there were a lot of young people, students doing crazy things, throwing things through windows, 
mixing up concrete, pouring it out in the kitchen floor, all that kind of animal house type stuff. And talked about how um, at different points there were so much, so many expenses with respect to repair and maintenance that he was actually working a job to subsidize that building because the building wouldn't even cover its own mortgage payment. And how he had progressed from being a landlord to then recovering by getting involved with um, the seller-backed finance note industry. And it really was a fantastic uh, discussion and it really got the crowd pumped up. Um, After um, he was finished, um, there was uh, John Schwab, who had spoken on Thursday, came back. He talked about negotiating tactics. And it was really quite interesting because he, he gave a lot of real life experiences of when he had been negotiating to buy houses for the most part um, and how he had positioned himself as a person in his, in his hometown that became known as a guy who would buy a house in a day. And so people would, who were really in a, in a state of urgent need to, to get out of a property would go to him and, um, and he talked about how he would often use different terms like like assuming someone's existing mortgage, for example, so they wouldn't have to go to the bank and get new financing, or paying for a house um, over time with payments, or even agreeing to pay more than a house is really worth, but also agreeing to get the seller to agree that he would only get his money once the home was sold, with full knowledge that he might keep it and rent it out for five to ten years. So it was quite interesting, you know, how he uh, how he was able to position. Um, all that kind of stuff. Once he, once he, and then we had lunchtime, and, and I met a few more people from from all over. Spoke with a woman from uh, who came from Southern California, and I met um, an av- a recovering avocado farmer who unfortunately had lost his orchard in some of the big fires that California had had, and decided he didn't want to be a farmer anymore. So he was at the conference learning about the note industry to see if this was going to be something for him. As the afternoon began. Um, there was uh, a woman, Danette Ferguson, from ReliantFinancial.com. She came on, and they, they're an institutional buyer of these uh, um, seller-backed financing notes. And so she went through her due diligence process when a note broker approaches them with the idea of buying a note that they've discovered. She explained how they go through and check the different things that they always want to see in looking at every deal. And she pulled up different websites on the screen. It was, it was really quite interesting. Um, the next one, um, was a a guy named Will Hanning and he did a presentation about mindset and assumptions that we all have about, about things that we learn at early ages that affect the way that we do business. And, um, he showed a really great video of these welders who had, uh, welded on, um, and I'm not sure what it's called. It might be a differential gear. Anyway, they, they did this onto a bicycle so when you turn the handle to the right, the front wheel turned to the left. And so basically, our, if you learned how to ride a bike from a young age, you know your brain gets wired in a certain way that this is how you control where you go. You have to you know, just point the handlebars and eventually if you ride enough bicycles, you don't think about it anymore. It just becomes second nature. And so this, this gentleman was trying to retrain his brain using this bicycle he was trying he was basically challenged to ride it and he wasn't able to and there's a video online about this uh, and it's hilarious because he he literally keeps falling over having accidents because he cannot cognitively he knows he's got to turn the handlebars the opposite way he wants to go but he just can't do it and 
he actually set aside time every day to practice riding this bicycle. It took him four months to be able to take this bike for a ride down the street um, with, with any degree of confidence. And he said even at that point, he had to have total concentration and focus in order to prevent himself from going back to his old ways. And so what, what Will Henning did, it, the reason why he showed the video, is because he wanted to um, talk about some of the assumptions people have. And, and most particularly, he was talking about how we communicate and he did an analysis in his own business, and then he has um, a bank essentially that buys these mortgage notes. And what he did is he analyzed his top performing note buyers versus the ones who who weren't doing as much, and he looked at how much time they spent on the phone versus how many emails they sent, and they were recorded all this stuff. And it wasn't that the top performers were spending more time on the phone chit chatting; their average call length was actually shorter. The difference was they were making more calls, and so. The what they learned from it is that doing these deals, negotiating with these note holders to buy their note and spending time talking to these people, the more frequent communications over the phone, where it was a two way dialogue and and, you know, written language, email, text, etc. You can't get the the feeling of what's being said. You can't hear how someone is saying something. And so that's why they brought in the, the little emojis, right? The little, the little images so that people could make a joke and let it be known that they were talking in a humorous voice. Um, <clears throat> so when I was a business broker, one of the things that I was always told is that when somebody um, sends you an email, your goal in the next email is to get them on the phone. And when somebody gets on the phone with you, your goal on the phone is to get them to come into your office. Because you want to get to that face-to-face meeting where you have the highest level of communication where not only can you hear what they're saying and understand the words, but you can understand how they're said and you can watch their body as they say it and get full communication that you know we have evolved with you know over the over the longest time. And so so that was it was really interesting. They um, we then had a networking break. Um, there was another speaker in there, Rich Meyer, who talked about the six different considerations he puts into deciding what kind of investment strategy he wants to have. And he was really talking to the people in the room who were there to investigate the note industry to see if they wanted to to start a business, do something in that industry. And he was basically saying, look, you have to figure out what your strategy is going to be, what you're going to do in this business, and then you got to go out and do a deal. Um, I, I left at the end of that to go take some time to do a quick review of my slides. And then, and then at three o'clock, I did my presentation, uh, which of course went over by eight minutes because uh, I can't seem to be succinct enough. But it was really well received. And um, at the end of my talk, uh, and, and I think there were about 200 people in the room, I took a selfie. You can, you'll be able to find it on the website. I'll probably put it on the cover to this, this recording. Um, the afterwards, I went into the next room where the round tables were and then the, the trade show space was, and about a dozen people followed me. So I was able to have a big, good discussion with people afterwards and find out what kinds of things they were working at or what kinds of notes, business notes they had had the opportunity to look at or buy and uh, got a lot of cards, made a lot of contacts. And, and I was able to um, you know, create some relationships that are probably going to end up doing, you know, being something for my business as things move forward. Um, a couple of other speakers were talking in the next room that I missed. And there was one, uh, actually, it was a, a panel discussion with six people. And I wasn't there. 
But uh, they were talking about their favorite deals, and I'm kind of sad that I missed that one because I'm, I'm sure there would have been some great stories. And then Jeff Armstrong, one of the guys who had spoken on the first day about marketing, he came back on to you know sort of incite the audience to get out there and do a deal if you haven't already. And uh, yeah, so at the end of that, um, you know, people were packing up and everything. And one of the gentlemen who had come out to talk with me after my talk invited me for dinner. So we went across the street and had a couple of beers and got some got some food at a little Italian restaurant and chit-chatted about his business. And then we came back to the hotel and there were some other people there from the conference that were still there um, enjoying a, a jazz singer. And so we talked with some other people and talked about their businesses and the types of deals that they did and stuff. And I just want to say that like, you know, I work from home and uh, I basically built this consulting business that I have today in order to support a certain lifestyle, which is centered around the needs of my kids so that I can be the after school care for my children when they're done every day. And I just happen to live, uh, you know, in a small city at the end of North America, you know, pointing out into the Atlantic. And so sometimes even with the Internet and with all the stuff that we can do as far as communications and everything, um, you know, you can you can start to feel a little bit isolated, a little bit alone. And this three-day conference for me was just an exciting, re-energizing re-energi- event because I was surrounded by, um, you know, even though they weren't strictly colleagues, like people who are involved in buying and selling businesses, they were people who understood financial concepts that I deal with every day. They use that understanding in a different way to in, in make investments and, and business strategies for for their ends. And just to be around 500 people who were intelligent, driven, ambitious, and excited about new ideas was a real, you know, um, um, it, it was just an energizing experience for me. And I'm really glad that I took the time to go. And... Uh, <laughs> Then I flew back overnight, and holy cow, um, I took a red-eye flight 15 years ago, and I believe I probably swore I never would again, and then, of course, I forgot that when I booked my ticket. But uh, yeah, flew back eastward across three time zones, which meant that uh, seven hours passed on the clock, but I only got uh, about three and a half hours of sleep. And um, Sunday was pretty much a blur, and I forgot to make this recording, but I'm doing it now, so... Um, if you think that you're interested in learning more about notes or, or vendor financing and the, the types of businesses that people set up, um, then you can go check out the website for the event. It's papersourceseminars.com. And the information from this year's is probably still up there. And they announced that next year it's going to happen April 25th to 27th, 2019. And it always happens in Las Vegas. And Las Vegas is, a, I guess, a great spot for these things because it's easy to fly there. And, you know, there's lots of hotel options and stuff like that. And um, if you are interested in hearing my presentation, um, I made a bootleg recording. So I clandestinely clipped on my lavalier mic and hit record on my phone and uh, recorded myself. And so what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to make that recording available as a bonus to one of my online courses, probably just for the month of May. Uh, 2018. And so if you're listening to this far off in the future, you know, just send me an email and see if you might be able to get the recording some other way. But if you're listening to it currently in the present, um, if you go to my exit planning course, 
which you can find at howtosellmyownbusiness.com. You can click on you know the exit planning course. Um, I will put the bootleg recording in there along with a PDF of my slides. So you'll be able to look at the slides as I go through the discussion. Um, because really what I talked about was how note investors could influence business brokers and business sellers into creating notes that an investor might want to buy. And if you own a business and you think you're going to sell it, and if you think that there's going to be a difficulty for the right for the buyer to buy your business and get financing from a bank for, for some portion of that purchase, then the strategies I discuss in that talk could help you set up your deal so that you could sell your business to a buyer, create one or more seller carryback notes, and then create one of them with the right features and the right setup that you may be able to find an investor to actually buy that note from you, helping you to get more cash, not on closing day, but probably three to six months after closing day, taking one of those cash flow streams and turning it into a big lump sum of money. So with that, uh, thank you very much. And again, if you want to learn how to sell a business, go to howtosellmyownbusiness.com and uh, go to davidcbarnett.com to sign up for my email list so you never end up missing incredibly important and interesting stuff that I put out on a regular basis, as well as ideas and musings that come to me sometimes daily. Thanks, guys. I had a lot of fun, and I'm glad I was able to share it with you. Talk to you later.